This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 148 entitled, Jesus Speaks to the Churches of Asia Minor, Part 2. Thank you so much for joining us at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. If this is your first time at the podcast, I'd like to welcome you and let you know that the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. And we'll be talking a lot about the humanity of Jesus today as he speaks to the churches of Thyatira and Sardis. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. I am grateful for the scriptures as they point us to the one true God and to his human Messiah, Jesus Christ. I am also thankful that I recently became a father as of last week. So you might hear my son in the background. He says hi. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will continue our ongoing study of the book of Revelation in order to see how Jesus Christ is presented in its pages. In particular, we have been exploring the letters to the seven churches located in Revelation chapters 2 through 3. This way, we can see how Jesus himself reveals information about his person, his role, and his attributes. In this episode, we will see what Jesus says about himself when he addresses the Christian churches in Thyatira and Sardis. Does Jesus speak to these churches as a sort of heavenly angel, perhaps even an archangel? Or maybe Jesus is going to claim to be Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Or will Jesus continue to exhibit qualities consistent with a high human Christology? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is Jesus Speaks to Thyatira. We'll read a section out of this letter to the church of Thyatira, starting in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they will commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her a time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know 
that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. That's Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. We'll come back a little bit later and read some more of this particular letter, but I wanted to start with this particular segment. So Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God, and you might be sitting there listening to this and thinking, okay, I know what Son of God means. I get that. That is the Jewish anointed king, the Messianic king that rules on behalf of God. Well, there's a little bit more to how the title Son of God would have been heard by these original recipients of this particular letter. So, from a local perspective, we need to talk about the figure of Apollo Tyrimnos. That is T-Y-R-I-M-N-O-S. Tyrimnos. Regionally, the Lydian sun god Tyrimnos, who was also known as Tyrimnaos, based on inscriptional evidence that remains, was the primary deity of Thyatira. Since Apollo was also the sun god from the Greek pantheon, these two merged within the cultic practices of Thyatira and became known as Apollo Tyrimnos, the sun god. So we have the Lydian sun god, Tyrimnos, and we also have Apollo, the Greek sun god, and they get merged and conflated and they collapse together into a single figure. Apollo was conflated even further when emperor worship became widespread in the Greco-Roman world, to the point where Apollo was even identified with Domitian, the emperor who was reigning during the writing of Revelation, probably. What is the relevance of talking about Thyatira's patron deity, Apollo Tyrimnos, the sun god? Well, Apollo was the son of God, namely the son of Zeus. I should also note that the English pun between sun, S-U-N, and son, S-O-N, did not exist in Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Aramaic, or any language spoken in Asia Minor. So the pun between S-U-N, son, and S-O-N, son, that we have in English is a coincidence, and it's not meant to be read as intentional from the perspective of the biblical authors. So creative preachers, please stop using this as some sort of biblical intended connection. What we can say with much confidence is that there is a deliberate attempt at framing Jesus, the Son of God, who has sun, S-U-N, sun-like qualities, like eyes of fire and feet like bronze, Revelation frames Jesus as the Son of God to subvert the Thyatiran Son of God, Apollo, the son of Zeus, who was likewise described with sun, S-U-N, like qualities. 
So we have Apollo, the sun god, who is also the son of God, the son of Zeus, that was worshipped and honored in Thyatira. And so Jesus portrays himself to subvert these claims as the son of God, the son of the true God. And it describes Jesus with these fire-like qualities, describing his eyes and his feet. Now, of course, from a Jewish perspective, Son of God would have carried with it a meaning denoting the Messianic King of Israel. Psalm chapter 2 describes the inauguration of Yahweh's King, the Anointed One, as God's Son. Also, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, portrays the descendant of David as the promised king who would rule forever. It should go without saying that to be son of God means that you are distinct from God, while nevertheless maintaining privileges that are associated with being related to God as a son. In sum, depicting Jesus as the son of God would carry with it Jewish connotations of God's anointed son, who was to reign and rule as king over God's kingdom. However, the imperial world of the Romans already had a ruler who was son of God, and that was the Roman emperor. It was very common for the Roman emperors, past and present, to be hailed as son of God. Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome, was adopted by Julius Caesar. And once Caesar was deified, that made Augustus the son of the deified god Caesar. After Augustus, his son Tiberius was also worshipped as son of God. And the trend continued on down the line through the first century. When the Julio-Claudian line ended with Nero, and a new dynasty was established with Vespasian, the practice of regarding the emperor as son of God was maintained. Titus was the son of God, namely the son of his father Vespasian. And the same title, son of God, was conferred upon Domitian, the son of Vespasian as well. For Jesus to promote himself as the true Son of God, when he addressed the church of Thyatira, he apparently was deliberately subverting the imperial power claims of the Roman Son of God. It's funny how religion and politics worked together in the first century AD. Of course, we've already noted that the image of Jesus having eyes like fire and feet like bronze appeared in Revelation chapter 1. And that image drew upon Daniel chapter 10. As a reminder from our previous episode, Daniel chapter 10 portrayed a human messenger appearing to the prophet Daniel in order to unveil the heavenly secrets. Along the same lines, Jesus is the human messenger who has eyes like fire and feet like bronze, and who speaks to the prophet John in order to unveil, you guessed it, heavenly secrets. So the allusion to Daniel chapter 10 
in describing Jesus as the one with eyes like fire and feet like bronze, needs to be given weight in the depiction of Jesus to the church in Thyatira. What else do we see when Jesus addresses this particular church? Well, it's very clear that Jesus is acting in the role of the judge. Let's talk about Jesus as the judge. Now, although the nouns judge, judgment, or the verb to judge do not appear in this letter, Jesus clearly speaks as one who is authorized to judge. Jesus tells the church in Thyatira that he is well aware of their deeds, both present deeds and those they performed in the past. Jesus knows that some in the church tolerate the prophetess Jezebel, and Jesus is aware of her actions and the actions of those who follow her teachings. In chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus acts as the judge by saying that he gave this prophetess time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her unfaithful deeds. This indicates that Jesus has been observing the situation in Thyatira for some time now. Jesus then threatens Jezebel with judgment and tells those who follow her teachings that they too will suffer judgment unless they repent of their deeds. So, while the time is out for the prophetess Jezebel, there is still time for those who have given in temptation and followed after her unfaithful ways. When Jesus describes the punishment that he will give out, he states that, quote, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each person according to their deeds. Chapter 2, verse 23. How can it be that a human being is able to search the hearts and minds? Answer, human beings are capable of doing such miraculous feats if they are empowered by God to do so. This behavior appears frequently among the Old Testament prophets, and even John the Baptist, all of whom were human. Furthermore, we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that the resurrected Jesus has been highly exalted and given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's Philippians 2.9 and Matthew 28.18. This point is specifically confirmed in Revelation 2.27, a little bit later in our passage, where Jesus says that he received authority from his Father, from God. In fact, by having the book of Revelation introduce Jesus as the Son of Man, back in chapter 1 and verse 13, who is the human figure from Daniel chapter 7, who was invested with dominion, glory, and kingship that belonged to the Ancient of Days within the context of judgment, we as readers are well prepared to see how Jesus can function as the empowered human judge. Let's move on in our passage where Jesus addresses the church 
in Thyatira, and let's read starting in chapter 2, verse 26. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall shepherd them with the rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. That is Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 27. So let's talk about this. Jesus says that he is going to give authority to these overcomers, to these conquerors, and they will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. Let's talk a little bit about this role as the shepherd. Now, this is actually a point that casual readers of Revelation are not even aware that exists, because many translations do not translate this verb, pimeno, as to shepherd in this particular passage. A lot of translations translate it as to rule. But Revelation has a perfectly good verb, which means to rule, like in Revelation 5.10. They will rule over the earth. They will reign over the earth using the verb vasilevo. But this is a different verb. This verb means to shepherd. And it's used in every other occurrence to refer to the shepherding pastor role that Jesus himself exercises. The other three places where it shows up are in chapter 7 and verse 17, where the lamb in the center of the throne will shepherd them. Also in chapter 12 and verse 5, where the woman gave birth to a son, a male child, who is going to shepherd all the nations. And lastly, in chapter 19, verse 15, where the rider on the white horse will shepherd them with a rod of iron. And so here in Revelation 2.26, Jesus says that he is going to authorize the overcoming, conquering Christians that they may shepherd the nations with the rod of iron, thus sharing in Jesus' own role and authority to act as the shepherd. Now, what does it mean that they will shepherd them with a rod of iron? And what does it mean that Jesus shepherds with a rod of iron? Well, if you consider Psalm 23, which says that Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then the psalm goes on to say that your rod and your staff, what do they do? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The purpose of the rod of the shepherd is to bring comfort. And this is very, very important. The verb to shepherd, coming from the Greek verb pimeno, means to guide, to nourish, to comfort, to lead, and to protect, namely by protecting against wolves. Not unlike how Jesus shepherded the church in Thyatira against the wolves while at the same time offering comforting nourishment and guidance to the faithful. And so Jesus invites the conquering believers to share in his role as the shepherd. By framing Jesus as the shepherd of the people of God, Revelation draws on the image of King David, 
who was the prototypical shepherd king. Framing Jesus in terms of David makes much of Jesus' own humanity. Now, Revelation 2.27 has Jesus admitting that he received authority from his father. So let's talk about Jesus as the authorized son of God. These traits held by Jesus are not innate to him. That is, they don't innately belong to Jesus. Jesus was given them. Specifically, Jesus admits that he was authorized by God. God invested Jesus with this authority. And this is a really critical acknowledgement by Jesus in Revelation 2.27, that he has received authority from the Father. Especially when we see Jesus bearing the traits and titles formerly reserved for God alone. When we see, for example, that Jesus has the hair of the Ancient of Days, this does not mean that Jesus is the Ancient of Days, but rather that God has invested this human Messiah with God's authority, allowing Jesus to share in some of God's attributes. The same can be said of titles, like Alpha and Omega and the First and the Last. When we see God and Jesus bearing these titles, this should not lead readers to confuse the Father and the Son or to collapse the Father and the Son into one being. God gave the authority to Jesus, and this is not what two co-equal persons do, because God and Jesus aren't co-equal. God is the God of Jesus. And Jesus tells us that he receives this authority from my Father, which clearly is God. Not just the Father, but Jesus' Father. Jesus has a Father. And this makes sense because the letter introduces Jesus as, guess who? The Son of God. Jesus is the Son, God is the Father, and the relationship between Jesus and God is that God is the father of Jesus and Jesus is the son of that God. Simple. Very, very simple. Okay, let's move on to our second point and look at Jesus speaking to the church in Sardis. We'll read most of this letter. It's six verses long. We'll just read the first five verses. Revelation chapter three. Let us start in verse one. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So, Remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes 
will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. It's Revelation 3, verses 1 through 5. So what do we learn about Jesus here? Well, we learn that Jesus has authority over the angels. It says in chapter 3 and verse 1 that Jesus has the seven spirits of God. Now, we've talked about this before in a previous episode, but I want to bring attention back to it because there are still some people that think that the seven spirits of God is actually a way of describing the one Holy Spirit as opposed to seven specific angels. Now, we know that angels are called spirits in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We can also see this trait in Qumran, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a widespread Jewish way of describing angels as spirits. So what Revelation shows here is consistent with that practice. We also know that these seven spirits are said to be, quote, before the throne, end quote, in chapter 4 and verse 5. And the seven angels are said to be, quote, before the throne, end quote, in chapter 8 and verse 2. So if we have seven spirits for the throne and seven angels for the throne, it's likely that these are the same group. Seven spirits are seven angels. Now, when Revelation wants to speak of the Holy Spirit, it is always spoken of in the singular, as we see in the common refrain given to each of the letters of the seven churches. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is one Holy Spirit, but Revelation recalls seven angelic spirits that are heavenly messengers. We even have extra-biblical Jewish sources that name these seven special angels. So Jesus has authority over the angels. He has, in the present tense, the seven spiritual angels of God. The resurrection and exaltation of Jesus elevated him above the angels, according to 1 Peter 3, verse 22. Specifically, angels have been subjected to Jesus, presumably by the Father, as the divine passive indicates in 1 Peter 3.22. Okay, so we see also in Sardis that Jesus talks about God. He says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So Jesus has a God. Who is that God? Well, we've already learned that Jesus' God is the Father, whom Jesus describes as my Father. So we have Jesus saying, my God, and Jesus also saying, my Father. And even in chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus says, I will confess his name before my Father. So within Sardis itself, we can see that this particular letter has Jesus talking about my God and my Father as one and the same person. No matter how exalted Jesus is in the book of Revelation, Jesus still has a God above him. And Jesus identifies this God as Jesus' Father. The God of Jesus is the Father. In fact, we can see Jesus address God as my God 
in three different stages of Jesus' life. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right before Jesus dies on the cross, according to Matthew 27 and Mark 15. Jesus says, my Father and my God, after his resurrection, but before his ascension into heaven, according to John 20, verse 17. And Jesus says, my Father and my God, after his ascension and exaltation, according to Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 5. So, no matter how exalted and how empowered the human Jesus is, he still has a God above him, and Jesus unambiguously describes God as Jesus' Father. Now, let's look at this reference to Jesus describing himself as the thief coming in the night, specifically when the believers in Sardis are sleeping. Just as we have seen Jesus address each of the communities in Asia Minor by pointing out local allusions to their social and historical situations, we can take a slight detour and look into the history of Sardis to make sense of this reference of the thief, the knight, and the sleeping citizens of Sardis. The city of Sardis had two levels, Lower Sardis at the base of a mountain and the Acropolis, sometimes described as the citadel of Sardis, at the top of the mountain. The ruins of this Acropolis have mostly survived to this day. You can send me an email if you'd like to have some pictures of them. The Acropolis of Sardis at the summit of the mountain served as a strategic location of defense for the city if it were to ever come under attack, especially because the mountain's cliffs were so steep it made it nearly impossible for an army to scale. In fact, the ancient phrase, quote, to capture the Acropolis of Sardis, end quote, was used by Greek speakers to refer to achieving the impossible. It was considered basically impossible to capture the Acropolis of Sardis. That, that phrase was even made into a little slogan. However, the Acropolis of Sardis was, in fact, captured in the year 549 B.C. Cyrus the Persian, of biblical fame, sent his best climbers to scale the mountain. The Greek historian Herodotus records in his work Persian Wars, chapter 1, paragraph 84, how one successful climber named Hyroides, quote, essayed to mount by part of the citadel where no guard had been set, end quote. This climber, belonging to the Persian army, located a hidden trap door under the unguarded wall at night. He entered into the Acropolis and opened the gates, allowing the Persian army to enter and capture Sardis. That happened in the 6th century BC. Now maybe you've heard of the expression, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We should learn our lessons from our mistakes. Well, Sardis didn't learn its lesson after being embarrassingly captured at night 
by the Persians because their guards were asleep at the wheel. The city was captured yet again in the very same manner some 300 years later. In the year 218 BC, Antiochus III, having read about the military victory achieved formerly by Cyrus the Persian, conquered Sardis in the very same manner, that is, while the guards of Sardis were asleep. And the Greek historian Polybius records this in his history work in chapter 7, paragraph 15 through 18. You can read more about it in those references. So we have the history of Sardis with not one, but two embarrassing blemishes in it that the citizens of Sardis were asleep at the wheel and they allowed a sneaky invader to come in under the cover of night. What do we find in Revelation's letter to Sardis? We have Jesus telling the church to wake up from their sleep, and if they don't, Jesus will come like a thief at an hour that they do not know. So Jesus' role here as the coming judge is framed in a way to make sense of the history of Sardis. And if we don't know that history as modern readers, then we miss out on this intention that was deliberately put there in the letter. Let's talk about Jesus as the judge of the book of life. It says that Jesus will not erase the name of the faithful conqueror out of the book of life. Now in Greek, if you're reading this, it is more likely to be translated as the scroll of life rather than the book of life because at the end of the first century there weren't exactly books or codices. They were all using scrolls. But the point for our passage is that Jesus has authority to take someone's name out of the book of life. And this further solidifies Jesus as the judge, or at least as one who shares in God's role as an authorized judge. We've already alluded to Jesus as the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, where there is a judgment scene taking place. Perhaps it's a good time to recall this passage for our listeners. In Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9, it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire, and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. And the passage goes on, and it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingship. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, and 13 through 14. So we have in this judgment scene, multiple thrones set up, presumably for God and for the Son of Man, because we have the myriads and thousands of angels that were standing before God. They're not sitting on thrones, they're standing. And we have the books opened. 
literally in Aramaic, the scrolls that were open, and presumably this would include the Book of Life, spoken of here by Jesus. So we have a human being likely attending to the Ancient of Days, where there's a judgment scene where the books are opened up for judgment. When we look at Jesus' threat to remove someone's name from the Book of Life, we must take seriously that Jesus is not only a savior figure, but also a figure as the head of the church who actively judges those who are unfaithful. For those who remain obedient, Jesus promises to confess their names before God and God's angels, indicating that both reward and punishment are to be given by Jesus, the authorized judge. So, in conclusion, we have observed that Jesus personally speaks to the churches addressed by the book of Revelation. In looking at the letters to the Christian communities in Thyatira and Sardis, we learn much about the person, role, and attributes of Jesus Christ. First, Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of God. This would have carried with it at least three connotations. For the locals in Thyatira, they were all too familiar with the regional deity, Apollo Terimnos, the sun god, and the son of Zeus. By framing himself as the fiery son of God, Jesus intended to subvert the powerful claims and worship given to the local fiery son of God in Thyatira, namely Apollo. From the Jewish category, Son of God indicated that Jesus was the anointed King of Israel, a specifically appointed and highly empowered ruler that reigned on God's behalf. Furthermore, since many of the Roman emperors were worshipped as the son of the deified former emperor, Jesus' title subverted even further Roman imperial claims to power. Second, Jesus speaks and functions as a judge who is authorized and empowered by God. Jesus is aware of the deeds of those in his churches. He gives time for the unfaithful to repent. He lays out rewards for the obedient and punishment for the disobedient. Jesus even has the authority to remove someone's name from the book of life. Third, Jesus acts as a nourishing, guiding, comforting, and protective shepherd. While offering direction and guidance to his churches, he also seeks to protect them from unfaithful leaders who tolerate sinful behavior. While acting as the shepherd king in the likeness of David, Jesus invites the conquering Christians to share in his role of the shepherd of the nations. Fourth, Jesus freely admits that he has received authority from God, demonstrating that the roles, privileges, prerogatives, and functions that Jesus exercise are given to him from God, rather than being innate to Jesus' person. It is clear that Jesus' authority stems from his death, 
resurrection, and exaltation. Fifth, Jesus has authority over the angels. This is consistent with the rest of the New Testament, which pictures the resurrected and exalted Jesus as the one who had the angels subjected to him. Jesus uses these heavenly angels to carry out the purposes of the book of Revelation. Lastly, Jesus defines God for the readers of the book of Revelation. God is the God of Jesus. This God is also Jesus' Father, not just the Father. Despite the highly exalted status and the immense authority that the Son of God bears in the book of Revelation, the Son still has a God ranked above him. And this God is Jesus' Father. In sum, Jesus reveals himself to Thyatira and Sardis in a Christological manner that best fits within a high human Christology. While the doctrine of the Trinity is nowhere to be found in the book of Revelation. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we round out the letters to the seven churches in search of clues as to the Christology of Jesus presented in the book of Revelation. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the truths of God's oneness and unity and of Jesus' humanity. You can support the podcast for free by sharing your favorite episodes and by giving an honest review of the podcast on iTunes. You may also donate to the podcast by checking out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much to Dustin Williams for his expertise in post-production and editing of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast week after week. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, take care, be safe, and have a happy Thanksgiving.